Welcome to First State Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Philip Barnes, and I'm a staff member at the Institute, which is a research and public service center at the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode, we are joined by Mike Powell, Shoreline and Waterway Program Administrator within Denrex Division of Watershed Stewardship, and we're here to discuss flooding in Delaware. We'll talk about the different types of flood risks, what residents and businesses should know about getting reliable information, and the steps that local governments and the state can take to help mitigate flood risk in Delaware. Mike, thanks for joining us today on First State Insights. Thanks for inviting me, Phil. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, would you mind telling them uh, what it is you're responsible for within uh, uh, DENREC? Sure. Um, our, our section is responsible for the state's dam safety program, floodplain mapping activities, uh, floodplain management assistance to communities. We also um, enforce regulations for constructions along the beaches and dunes in Canton Sussex County um, to protect that resource from harmful development activities. We uh, are responsible for waterway management, which is basically dredging for navigational channels that are in our responsible, um, under our areas of responsibility. And the um, shoreline management, which is beach nourishment, uh, dune reconstruction, uh, maintaining public uh, dune access and vehicle access pathways to the beach and all of the things that go along with those areas of responsibility as well as flooding right sure flooding is um flooding is a common thread through many of those uh areas of responsibility for sure and so that's what we're here to talk about today is uh, is the flooding and flood risk situation in the state so uh, my first question for you is uh, what are the different types of flood risk that we that we have here in delaware and how might that vary by where you're located Sure. Well, there certainly are a variety of causes of flooding and types of flooding. Probably most people um, think of coastal flooding or storm surge, and that's that's for good reason. It's probably the um, largest flood risk that Delaware faces, and that can um, that is caused by hurricanes or winter storms causing. Uh, onshore wind to pile water up along the coast and um, in the back bays and up riverine estuaries and is um, certainly has caused the most damage in Delaware historically. Um, and uh, is all three counties are subject to coastal storm surge flooding as is the Western areas that can get it out of the Chesapeake Bay Basin. Um, rainfall runoff is also a severe um, cause of flooding in Delaware. Um, it's it's more of a phenomenon that we see north of the canal where where the um, Piedmont topography 
as opposed to the coastal plain topography just lends itself to more runoff. You have larger, larger watersheds, steeper slopes, more development. Those um, are all risk factors for rainfall runoff flooding, but that's not to say that Sussex County um, and Kent County can and do also have uh, rainfall runoff flooding. And then I would also throw in um, localized stormwater and drainage flooding, which can be caused by a variety of sources, but commonly is um, associated with insufficient drainage or stormwater infrastructure, meaning that um, rain that hits impervious surfaces um, that would ideally drain into uh, streams or lakes or bays um, just can't get there for some type of um, impediment or insufficient um, catch basins. Um, flat areas in Sussex County are also uh, prone to poor drainage where there just isn't any downhill direction for water to go and it can kind of pond up and cause shallow flooding. So you mentioned that shoreline and coastal flooding is uh, perhaps the most costly uh, form of flooding here in Delaware. And I know residents, business owners, visitors are are familiar with, with flooding in Delaware because we, we do experience so much of it. Uh, can you put a dollar value on the cost of flooding in Delaware? And, it's and a difficult question to answer because so many things are monetized and flooding causes so many impacts. Um, you know, most commonly we think of damage to property and infrastructure. You know, record keeping isn't as good as you would think. We have information from the flood insurance data. Insured losses are only a small part of actual losses um, due to flooding and probably due to other risks as well. Although flood insurance is not as widespread as um, homeowners or auto insurance. So as a percentage of damage, it's probably flooding probably is, is, is a lower percentage that actually gets caught up in insurance claims. It's certainly more than $100 million of claims paid since the records that we have access to dating back to 1978, um, I suspect that e I suspect that losses to just buildings, homes and businesses are at least three times that much in that time period because um, we, we generally think that only about one third of total damage due to flooding is covered by insurance. That leaves uh, transportation infrastructure you know, sewer and water infrastructure, just the many of the, the parks, parks of the state park systems also are forms of infrastructure that experience severe flood damage and typically aren't covered by insurance. And there isn't really a comprehensive um, record keeping system that I'm aware of that kind of tallies all that together. But it, it, it could it would certainly be in the hundreds of millions of dollars over the last few decades. So it's a very, a very significant uh, financial burden. And it's it's probably getting worse over time as development in um, flood prone areas has increased. Although our standards are higher, we're also just building a lot more. 
Um, yeah, that so, was actually going to be my next, uh, my follow-up question is wh where do you think this is headed? Because uh, the state has seen an increase in, in development over the past several decades. And as you, as you mentioned, much of it is in uh, locations that are vulnerable to flooding. There's good news and bad news. I think the good news is that we've, we have much better information about what we need to do to design development to be resistant to flooding. We have just over the past 25 years assembled some pretty good flood risk maps in Delaware that allow projects to be designed to a much more realistic standard. Whereas 50 years ago, I mean, people certainly designed projects to resist flooding, but may have had um, a less data-driven approach to, to that goal. So we, we're building, we're building, but we continue to build out floodplains. There's no doubt about it. And that's not anything specific to Delaware. As a nation, we're continuing to migrate to high-risk coastal areas. Um, as a nation, we're continuing to build in high-risk floodplains. That's not to say that a lot of um, efforts aren't being made to throttle that back, but we are still we are still increasing the amount of vulnerable development in floodplains, and our flood risks are are increasing over time. So when you combine it all together, when you combine the the greater impervious surfaces and the conversion of forest and farmland over to developed land, we get more rainfall runoff. And we have rising sea levels that make um, storms more severe along the coast. So that all probably adds up to a continuing increase in, in flood vulnerability. If you're a, a resident property owner uh, here in Delaware, where can you go to get accurate, reliable information about your vulnerability to flooding? Yeah, it's not as good as you would hope. Um, getting getting really accurate information about flood risk for a specific property has a number of challenges. Um, there are there are attempts to require sellers to disclose information about flood risk to prospective buyers. Um, there is a tremendous amount of improvement that we need to uh, see to seller's disclosure um, to pass along better information to a prospective buyer about the flood history to a property and the flood vulnerability. Um, privacy. Does, does I'm sorry, does Delaware not have a, a disclosure no, we uh, do. requirement? We do have sell a seller's disclosure law, and it covers a variety of topics, certainly many, many things beyond flooding. Flood, flood risk is just one, one or two questions in a seller's disclosure form that um, has, you know, I think several dozen questions. Um, one of the problems is that, you know, it relies on the information that a seller has. And, um, you know, someone who's lived in a property for five or 10 years uh, may not have the full picture on, um, you know, how much uh, flood history 
a property has had. Um, and it certainly doesn't ask detailed questions like tell us how much it costs you to insure your property for flooding and how many you know damaging events have you had. It doesn't get into nearly that level of detail. And those are bits of information that people would love to know before they buy a property. How much will it cost me to insure it? And, you know, how much damage has this property sustained in the past 10 or 20 years? And that is simply not typically transferred from seller to buyer. And you might think that they could do research. The prospective buyer could try to get that information through some other means. Um, and that's where the National Flood Insurance Program Privacy Act um, comes into play and really prevents the National Flood Insurance Program from making that kind of data available to people who might be interested in it. So it's but, hard. For, it's really hard for a for a prospective buyer to 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 get that information. It is difficult, um, and so yeah. that that makes it necessary for people to rely on higher level higher level methods of getting flood information, like floodplain maps and. Um, which which is available through from FEMA, from floodsmart.gov, from Delaware's flood planning tool. A, a person can certainly type in an address or a parcel number or just zoom to a specific location and determine um, information like uh, how how whether their prop whether the property that they're interested in is in a floodplain. They can find out. Um, information, relatively accurate information about how the ground elevations might be above or below predicted flood levels at that location. So you mentioned this previously, uh, climate change and, and sea level rise. So how does that factor into this conversation? Right. Well, sea, sea level rise and climate change and watershed development changes are examples of drivers of change to flood risk. And the floodplain maps do not do a very good job of predicting what the flood risk will be at a given location looking forward 10 or 20 years, as much as they do kind of represent a snapshot of the flood risk when the studies were performed, as much as they do kind of capturing uh, the flood risk at a property based on historical or at best current um, risk factors. And sea level rise, climate change, watershed development are all um, factors that probably mean that many locations in Delaware will be at a significantly higher risk for flooding in the future. Um, and those increased risks are just not shown on the federal floodplain maps. So so for inland flooding, this isn't so much of an issue. Um, it could be if there's more intense precipitation or development um, that could increase the flood risk. But certainly for coastal areas, because of sea level rise, what I'm hearing is that the current products that that communicate your flood risk, such as the as the FEMA maps, those are current or historical 
maps and not future maps that account for sea level rise. And so would it be safe to say that at least in coastal areas that the or areas that are vulnerable to coastal flooding, that those locations, the current mapping uh, products underestimate flood risk? They underestimate future flood risk. Future flood risk, yes. They may they may do a pretty good job of depicting current flood risk. They they probably um, they almost certainly do not depict the risk that will exist at a location, um, you know, in the future. Uh, and the further you go out into the future, the less adequate those maps and and models are at um, predicting what that risk will be. And so, because we base in part our our flood insurance rates off of off of these these maps is is fema doing anything to change that situation so that the maps reflect future flood risk and perhaps they're not doing they're not doing a lot um they will allow communities to um to show additional data on maps um, but very few communities are are taking advantage of that. It's quite costly just to do a floodplain study for current risk. Um, it's even more challenging to, uh, it's quite challenging in coastal areas, especially um, with the number of risk factors that, that, that are difficult to model. Um, coastal erosion, changes to um to sea level in the future um and then and then determining flood risk in the future with those characteristics of the land and water changed is a pretty sophisticated um modeling effort which is not to say that it can't be done it's um just costly and and um fema fema does not stand in the way of communities or states performing those kinds of analyses and even regulating development to those higher standards but um, it's 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 not it's not as easy as it might sound and I imagine there's also political considerations uh, and, and economic pressures that that make that more difficult as well there are um, there are uh, those those higher um, those higher standards that would exist along the coast would increase um, the cost of development but you would probably make the argument that um, in, in many cases the those higher initial costs for designing to a higher standard will will pay back um, over the lifetime of a building. This is First State Insights from the University of Delaware Institute for Public Administration. Today we're joined by Mike Powell, who is the Shoreline and Watermate Program Administrator with DENREC's Division of Watershed Stewardship, and we're discussing flooding in Delaware. Mike, we've talked about the different types of flooding uh, experience in Delaware, the cost of flooding, and where people can go to get information on flood risk. My next question is, what are we doing about it? I mean, what are state and local governments doing to help mitigate flood risk? 
Well, one of the things I think the most important thing that many communities have done is to adopt higher floodplain standards for development. Um, it may be it may be challenging and technically difficult to create a accurate depiction of future risk. So oftentimes it's easier to just assume a certain amount of um, increase in flood risk and design projects for a higher level of risk, say putting your floor um, 18 inches higher than the current 1% annual chance flood level to account for 18 inches of flood increase during that building's lifetime, or building a house on an open pile foundation in areas that are not required by um, minimum standards to be on an elevated pile foundation, but um, as flood risks increase in the future, you may wish that you, you may expect to see uh, land erosion or wave action in areas that aren't ex necessarily experiencing it yet. So having the house or building on that um, more sturdy foundation um, will will ultimately protect it during its lifetime. So higher higher standards. Um, the state of Delaware impaneled a um, floodplain and drainage advisory committee several years ago to come up with consensus higher standards, and many communities in Delaware have adopted those voluntary higher standards. So. Those are some of the things that communities are doing on the kind of um, designing development side of things. And then with the legacy of at-risk development that we already have, there are hazard mitigation projects. And that can range from things like flood proofing buildings to buying out buildings that are just at such a high flood risk that trying to retrofit them is not um, practical. So there's been there's been some of that done. Um, there was a community in Newcastle County of about 160 homes that were bought um, about 15 years ago in a very high risk floodplain along Red Clay Creek. And oftentimes those projects are the most successful when they solve a number of issues at the same time. They not only eliminate the very high flood risk properties, but in other cases, they can um, they can provide flood storage to protect other development from flooding. Um, they can create habitat in areas where um, land or highway development projects are impacting wetlands. So it's an opportunity to create new um, wetlands habitat along river corridors that may have lost a lot of that habitat over the years. And, and my observation is that those projects are most successful and have the greatest chance of political success when they are designed to address kind of multi-objective management. On the other hand, I can imagine that there are some practices that are ill-advised. Um, what, what do those things look like? Sure. M making making poor decisions without good information is is just inevitably in high risk areas going to cause problems so buying properties 
without doing research on the flood risk or cost of flood insurance um, is something that I, I, I see people doing. Um, and I, I, you know, we respond to, we respond to concerns from, from homeowners and business owners who are faced with, um, flood risks that they weren't aware of when they made the decision where to build or what to buy, where to buy. Um, they are shocked at the cost of flood insurance. Um, and the cost of flood insurance is is really the source of a lot of confusion. I think because it's increased a lot over the last uh, 10 or 20 years as the National Flood Insurance Program has found itself in increasingly dire financial uh, situations, they've really had no choice but to ask Congress and get from Congress the ability to raise rates at a much higher rate to um, try and stem their losses. And, and the losers in that are people who bought high-risk properties thinking that the days of $500 a year flood insurance were gonna go on forever. And those days are gone. Um, I hear regularly from homeowners who are quoted five, six, seven thousand dollars a year for a flood insurance policy wow. for a relatively a relatively modest um, home or business. And what about so that's from the individual property owner or or buyer side? What about different types of development practices? There are. We are still, we are still seeing uh, a lot of development along the coast in areas that are predictably going to be increase uh, subject to increased flood risk due to sea level rise, due to shoreline erosion. Some communities are doing better than others in um, getting a handle on those risk factors and trying to guide their development decisions um, away from the areas that are, that are quite likely unsustainable. Um, sustainability is really something that I worry about. The cost of insurance, the amount of flood risk that um, properties are subject to, or just simple things like how, how likely will my road network be passable, um, you know, 20 years from now? And should it fall on the Department of Transportation to um, provide, um, you know, retrofits to road, road systems to facilitate um, uh, development in high-risk areas? Those are very difficult questions. And, and unfortunately, if you build before you have the answer to all those questions, if you build in high risk areas, you're really kind of kicking the can to future decision makers to deal with the aftermath. And, and that that is something that we're facing now from land development um, practices that were and decisions that were made, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And we are facing um, you know, significant um, transportation challenges due to flooding. And yet we are continuing to develop in areas that are, you know, quite likely to require that um, mitigation in the future.
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. So your your property, uh, if you're a homeowner, your property may be may be high and dry, but the road to access your property may be inundated, and so that's that's yeah. something that's something another another consideration when when developing and when purchasing a property. But it's it's difficult to know that if you don't live there and 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 experience it. Right. And we're seeing, you know, the change in a lot of areas in Delaware from um, vacation homes to full-time residences and people who maybe spent most of their time at the coast in, um, you know, May, June, July, and August are now spending, you know, December, January, February, and March in these areas. And they're realizing that to get through the winter, um, and to get to the grocery store and to worry about, you know, can I evacuate if a storm comes? Um, they weren't thinking about that when it was a vacation home or their neighborhood was, you know, not a retirement community. And those those concerns are really um, heightened quite a bit as we start to see full time occupation of these areas. OK, Mike. Uh, so with that said, what should state and local governments as well as individuals uh, be doing differently? I mentioned that a lot of communities in Delaware are already implementing higher standards, and that's that's excellent. For communities that are regulating to the, um, the base federal floodplain maps and the minimum NFIP regulations, which allow development in the floodplain, they allow houses to be built with their floors right at the 100-year flood elevation. There's really a national consensus among subject matter experts that that is a unacceptable, unacceptably high level of risk. In fact, if you're building in the floodplain and you're not elevating the floor of your home or business above the 100-year flood level, it is very predictable that during the lifetime of that building, it will sustain severe flood damage. It will become very expensive to insure. And for most people, they will not be, um, they, they will not, um, they, they will wish they had, had, had chosen to adopt a higher standard if they build to the minimum risk. Communities at a very minimum should be encouraging development far, far above the federal standards, minimum standards, and can participate in programs like the community rating system to get lower flood insurance rates as an incentive for adopting those higher standards. They also need to be aware of other risk factors besides flooding, such as shoreline erosion, increased wave action, or just more frequent flooding in the future and try to um, try to build those other risk factors into their um, decision-making process. And I think I mentioned earlier that um, transportation infrastructure and stormwater management and drainage infrastructure <clears throat> all kind of go hand in hand with floodplain management. If you build a house um, in the floodplain and get the floor to the necessary level to protect it from flooding, but the access roads or the stormwater management infrastructure um, isn't adequate, then you will still have a lot of residual flood risk. And what about 
state government, is there anything the state could do differently as well? Well, the state the state is doing a lot um, in terms of uh, sea level rise adaptation, um, in terms of climate change um, planning guidance, and um, the state has a um, has a number of um, areas where the state regulations and state laws are guiding factors for um, building in high risk areas. A, a good example of that is the uh, beach preservation uh, building line along the coast. Um, the beach preservation building line was established in 1981 in Kent and Sussex County along the Delaware Bay and Atlantic Ocean coast as a setback line to protect dunes. That dune setback line has not changed since 1981 and um, in many areas. In many areas, especially where erosion has been a, a problem over those last 40 years, that building line that may have provided enough room to maintain um, adequate dunes uh, 40 years ago, the beach, the bay has, has migrated inland to the point where that building line is no longer set far enough back from the bay or Atlantic Ocean to, to provide for a dune system. And um, updating our coastal setbacks is something that has been identified as a as a real need and a real challenge. Um, you know, when you when you establish a line of demarcation and 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 build to that line for 40 years, it becomes exceptionally difficult to remap it. Um, because that has a lot of impacts on people who have bought property during those 40 years or may, may have an expectation of where they will be able to build or what they will be able to build. And um, it's high, high cost real estate um, that we know um, that there will be a lot of political pressure against that form of what is, you know, might be referred to as retreat. Well, that's a conversation for another day, and, and it is the the retreat conversation. Um, so hopefully, we can have you back here uh, on the podcast, Mike uh, Mike Powell from Denrec. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great conversation, Bill. Thank you very much for giving me the time. If you'd like more information on flooding in Delaware and to see your property's flood risk, conduct a web search for the Delaware Flood Planning Tool. Denrec's uh, flood mapping website should be at the top of your search results. And you can also visit FEMA's national website at floodsmart.gov. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Philip Barnes from the University of Delaware IPA. And to learn more about IPA, you can visit us at bidenschool.udel.edu forward slash IPA. Thank you for listening to First State Insights.